Hi everyone, welcome back to the Yankees Magazine podcast. John, how are you? You look kind of, you're grimacing a little. No, I just got knocked out on question three in HQ. It's been a rough afternoon. I did too, John. It was a savage question, honestly. Nathan, how are you? Doing well. Finally uh, thawed out from my trip to frosty Nashville, Tennessee. That is right. Our intrepid travelers have returned from their journeys to John went to the Dominican Republic. Nathan went to Tennessee. Nate, tell us about Tennessee. We were doing stories on two different Yankees, uh, Sonny Gray, who came over to the team at the trade deadline last year, and Justice Sheffield, who came over at the trade deadline the previous year, who still hasn't cracked the bigs, but is kind of working his way. He's knocking on the door. He'll be here soon. He sure is. So they're both from outside of Nashville, and um, we traveled all over the place. We went to, I think, four different high schools in a couple of days, and because of the inch and a half or two inches of snow (laughs) that they had, all the high schools and all the schools in the area were closed the entire week. For snow days. Yes. So we kind of had our run of the place wherever we were, and, and you know, all the folks who were tasked with meeting with us and and speaking to us and unlocking doors and opening (laughs) facilities for us could not have been more gracious. The the phrase Southern hospitality still rings true down there. I mean, everybody we met was just so kind and so helpful. In addition to uh, spending time with Sonny and with Justice and getting to know them a little bit better and getting to meet their families, um, you know, we also met some of the people who were part of their lives growing up, you know, former teachers and coaches. Um, so I, I feel like, uh, you know, it was a whirlwind trip and that we met a lot of people, went a lot of places, but we came away with, a, I feel, a really good understanding of who these guys are and what they're all about. It seemed like last year when he came over, Sonny kind of kept everyone kind of at an arm's length. And I don't mean his teammates. I don't know what he was like, but you know, he didn't you saw very few real deep dives into who he was. And I think that was by choice on his part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't tell you the first thing about his personality or mm-hmm. anything other than his game. What did you learn about him? A lot. And you're right. You know, I think coming over to a team in the middle of a season is kind of jarring for it, for any player um, to come to New York in the middle of a really exciting 2017. He just kind of wanted to focus on, his on-field duties. Um, so yeah, when when Sonny came here in 2017, we didn't get much of an opportunity to really learn who he is or, or get a good feel for what he's about. But being with him on his home turf, back in his hometown, it was really eye-opening, really fun. He is hilarious. I mean, he's like, he's kind of goofy. He's got a sense of humor that's it's hard to describe a really great personality though you know i I got the sense that he's the type of guy who teammates love being around because he's just funny you know he rips on guys he doesn't take himself too seriously at all but when it comes to pitching and preparing for a season uh i was really impressed with what i saw with sonny you know, our day with him started pretty early. You know, I think we met him around before 9 a.m. At, at a gym where he works out with this guy, Josh Rankins, who he met, Sonny met while he was at Vanderbilt. And Josh isn't necessarily like a personal trainer, but he does work one-on-one with Sonny. And to watch them up close, it was really fascinating to me to see just how much 
Sonny cares about what he's doing. Like, he's not just going through the motions like, oh, yeah, today is a lift day or blah, blah, blah. Like, every little different thing that they did, Sonny was concentrating on and had input in. And it wasn't just a schedule. It was like their days are all different depending on how Sonny's feeling. Again, Sonny's not just sitting there. He's an active participant in all this stuff. They're, They're discussing things. Like John, I didn't interact much with Sonny when he was here last year, but he's not a super imposing guy. He's kind of mm-hmm. short in stature. He's he's small, but he's powerful. And it was interesting to me when I was talking to you and, and kind of listening to your interview with him. His story is just so crazy, and it's it's something I didn't even know happened to him where where his father died when he was young mm-hmm. and he's just mature beyond his years which I, I i didn't know he's still a very young guy he's in his 20s still isn't he yeah i think he's 28 maybe yeah um, and he, that's really what struck me from everything you were telling me and, and the kind of guy that he is that i didn't even know about and that's kind of he's he's not imposing when you look at him, but when you start to talk to him and, or listen to him, like I was listening to his interview with you, it mm-hmm. was, you're just impressed. You're blown away by who this guy actually is. He's never been short on confidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for good reason. I mean, he was, his father, Jesse, instilled in him at a young age, a, a love of baseball. And really, you know, his his family was willing to do what it took to see his athletic career advance. Growing up in this kind of Nashville area, high school football down there in Tennessee, like many areas of the South, football is big down there. High school football is the number one sport. So they were kind of looking at it, okay, where do we, where can we move our family where Sonny's going to have an opportunity to thrive as an athlete and it also makes sense for our whole family because he has two sisters as well, one older, one younger. You know, the big kind of dominant high school down there I think is Riverdale and you know they had a coach who had won like 15 state championships and had won over 400 games and you know he approached Sonny's dad and was like why don't you come to Riverdale we'll win a couple state titles and uh Sonny's dad I think already had his eye on uh, a town called Smyrna which did not have the the same kind of tradition and he said no we're gonna go to Smyrna and win a couple state titles (laughs) and uh Sure enough, that's what happened. It's really, it's an incredible story. And the thing that I found most kind of bewildering down there is that Sonny is an absolute legend in Smyrna. And it has almost nothing to do with baseball. <laughs> you know? Major league pitcher. <laughs> yeah. That, like, Nobody they, cares about nope, that. Because he can't walk the streets of Smyrna without somebody stopping him and coming up and saying thank you for delivering back-to-back state championships. He was the quarterback of the football team. I mean, his his football jersey hangs on the walls of restaurants down there. It's pretty amazing, and there's, there's a lot to his story. So uh, I'm really excited to sit down and write it and, and give Yankees fans some real insight into you know, who Sonny Gray is, where he's from, and just what he what he still means to this place and, and what they mean to him. I mean, you know, he, you know, smiling the whole time. We were walking around his high school, talking to his former coaches and stuff, and he's, you know, cracking jokes and 
reliving some of the, the funny, you know, memories and stuff. What I find so interesting, especially when you spend time with these guys away from the stadium, is in baseball, more than most sports, really, you get a good look at these guys and who they are. But the thing is, you know, you spend time with a lot of these players and you walk around with them. And part of what makes the experience interesting is just, you know, these huge guys. I mean, even like a normal looking baseball player, you know, like a Greg Bird is a normal looking guy. And I think he's probably 6'2", something like, I mean, he, he is objectively a big person in any world. And, that, and, and, I, and I have always thought, you know, that when you look at part of professional sports success, I think that part of it is being all your life kind of an alpha dog. So, you know, when you're walking into a restaurant that kind of like the eyes go to that person because... You know, they see right away. This guy just looks, you know, like the alpha dog again. Mm. Sonny Gray is what five ten? Yeah, I mean, maybe. Yeah, I he, mean, he he does not look like your prototypical professional athlete. I can't believe you're telling me that he was that successful as a quarterback because of all the players on that team that I would have guessed could have handled high school football. Sonny Gray would be one of the maybe other than like Ronald Torres. Yeah. Sonny Gray just does not look like a guy who's yeah, going to stand there in the pocket. Pretty low on the list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting to me. And again. I, goes right in the face of what I generally think about as being part of what makes these guys who they are, which is just like towering over kind of like everybody from a young age. With Sonny, there's there's something inside of him. And I, I watched the um, the broadcast of his final high school game, which was the, the state championship game of his senior year. You could tell he's he's far from the biggest guy on the field, but he is running around slinging that ball. He's throwing passes across his body. He's zipping, you know, 25 yard passes in between defenders. Like he's just an athlete with, uh, there's, I don't know. I mean, he's got a, a big heart inside of him because when, when there's big situations, he, he generally has risen to the occasion. I mean, we saw it last year in the playoffs against Houston and I think there's also just something, like, physically weird about it. Like, I remember that, that trainer, Josh, like, when he was working on his shoulder, like, he was kind of stretching his arm back. And he was saying to us as he's doing it, he's like, humans aren't supposed to be able to do this. Like, Sonny's shoulder just kind of does things that are not normal. So I think between his his physiological makeup, although it's not like, you know, Aaron Judge is a physical specimen too. I think Sonny is in his own way. It's just a different shape than we're used to seeing. Plus, you know, just what he's got going inside of him uh, makes him a pretty special athlete. There is a part of being a professional athlete that I, I think that we look at these people and just assume that, okay, they worked harder than I ever did at baseball, and that's why, you know, they're on the field right now. That's why they're doing this stuff. I think one thing we forget is that there is something genetic about a lot of these people that is quite simply different than the rest of us um, that makes their arms able to do things that, you know, none of us can possibly do. You know, there is not an amount of practice I could do now or probably could have done at a young age, in my opinion, that would ever make me, you know, throw a fastball consistently like Luis Severino. Yeah, I think there's definitely something physically different about an athlete and something mentally different about an athlete because, and a baseball athlete in particular, because baseball, as any baseball player will tell you, is mostly about failure. And you have to deal with that and be mentally prepared to deal with that more so than most other sports. And I think Sonny Gray shows that a lot. And all of these Yankees and all of these baseball players show that a lot. He's taken whatever physical traits or, or gifts he's he's been given and just really honed them from a mental standpoint. Uh, when I was watching him pitch, and if you go on our 
Twitter feed, um, I, I posted a video on there at Yanks Magazine. You can see him like he gets the ball and he, he's looking at it and then he, you know, goes into his windup and he throws it. And, you know, his uh, the guy he's throwing with, Jeremy, you know, he's not a big league catcher or anything like that. So he's like shouting down to him like, hey, where's this one going to go? <laughs> and so Stunny kind of like nods one way or the other. And sure enough, the ball kind of breaks that way. But, you know, I, I spoke to him later, spoke to Sonny later about when you're looking at your hand, wh- what are you doing there? Like, what are you thinking about? And essentially what he's doing at this point, you know, it's January. He's kind of like programming himself. The reason I'm, I'm constantly looking at my hand and I'm looking at my finger positioning on the ball. And so, like, all I'm trying to do is making sure that going over, like, remembering my grips mm. and remembering what they feel like so so I want to feel it and then I want to look at it to make sure that it's correct because I, I have a tendency just to like grips can feel weird and I just don't feel right just don't feel right so now I'm just I'm trying to get it and I, I'm looking at myself and I'm, I'm I'm putting the grip that I want to throw and then I'm seeing what it feels like and I throw it so then I'll I'll, I'll grip a, a two-seam fastball, and I'll hold it, and I'll look at my fingers and see what they look like, and then I'll throw it. Yeah. And then with the cutter, I'll grip it and watch myself grip it and look, make sure the grip's okay, and then I'll throw it. And I'll do that in the off-season just to put it back in my brain, like, you know, because in the season you get the ball and you're like, you got a feel, and you're like, okay, I, I, know it's, I know it's right. Yeah. I know it's right. He's kind of just reprogramming his brain in in preparation for the season making a rolodex of what it should look like and what it should feel like and how it it needs to be yep to make sure he's successful and then throwing it and sure enough it it sure does it and you can hear it whistling by i mean it's incredible to stand that close in a in an environment where you know we we were indoors there wasn't really a lot of people around to not only see a pitcher throwing that close but you can literally hear it was really cool. I'm excited to learn more about Sonny Gray. I, yeah. <laughs> like, you, like we said at the at the top, I, I have no, I had no idea about anything about this guy other than he's a right-handed pitcher and yeah. he plays for the Yankees. He um he, he's really interesting. And when he was in high school, he performed in High School Musical. <laughs> they, that was like not the, so he was in the High School's Musical, which put on. High School Musical. Correct. Interesting. Which I have not seen, but um, I have, Nathan. Was he it? Troy Bolton? He was. The lead? He was. <laughs> a, a man of many talents. And everybody who we asked, who saw him perform, said, he's a much better pitcher than a singer. <laughs> but they said this was not just like a lark, like he was doing it to be funny. Like he really put in the work. He would go to football practice till... 5 p.m. or whatever, and then he would head over to play practice. And, you know, I think it's he, called rehearsal. Rehearsal. He knew all his lines. He did all the singing. He's an interesting dude, and I think it's going to be a great story. It's currently slated for the April issue of Yankees Magazine. Hopefully come opening day, there'll be a nice nice feature on uh, Sonny Gray in there. And I, I hope that you know the New York fans and media do get to see this side of him because uh, I think they'll only root for him more knowing his story. It's going to be good, Nate. I'm glad you went. I'm glad Sonny opened up to you. Yeah, now, now the pressure's on. You know? Well, 
All right, guys, I got to go right. <laughs> if anybody could do it, you could do it. All right, awesome. Coming up in this episode, I'm going to introduce a new segment where we interview just the Yankees. You're going to hear straight from the horse's mouth how these Yankees are doing. I talked, I stayed in New York, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it. I stayed in New York and, the town. <laughs> and got David Robertson on the phone, and we talked a little bit about his return to New York, his epic postseason, and his offseason. So I'll have that interview for you. And then right after that, we're going to talk about John's journey to the Dominican Republic. So stick around. Working for Yankees Magazine, we, the editors, get access to the players that most others don't. Here on the Yankees Magazine podcast, we want to give you a taste of what that's like. In this new segment, we're going to hand over the reins to the players themselves, and you're going to hear from them exactly what they're thinking, how they're feeling, and what they're working on. In this first conversation, I got David Robertson, the Yankees relief pitcher on the phone, to talk about how he felt coming back over to the Yankees after a couple years away, what it was like to go through this postseason in this new Yankees roster, and just what he's working on, what he's excited about. Here's some of our conversation. What was your first reaction when you heard you were being traded back to the Yankees? It was it was a kind of a relief. Um, you know, I've been hearing all sorts of teams that were supposedly interested in me and uh, that I was going to be traded to, and then for New York to just kind of come out of left field and pick up all three of us was kind of nice. It was, it was, it was good because I knew I was coming back to a place that I hadn't been before, and I was familiar with a lot of the guys on the team, and I knew how the organization worked. How had the organization changed, though, since you've been away? I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of turnover on the roster. So what, what was it like to enter the clubhouse as it was now, last year? I felt like, honestly, when I entered the clubhouse, like I never left. I mean, I've you know, the, the roster may have turned over and there might be a lot of young guys there, but I've, I've played for the Yankees longer than any of them have even been with the organization, so <laughs> it wasn't too much of a worry for me. <laughs> when you got traded, you were a closer for the White Sox. You had finished a lot of games for them, and then you were on a team where you were going to be pitching in any number of scenarios. So what was that transition like? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't. It was. I, I wasn't worried about it at all. Um, coming over, I knew that uh, New York was really determined to win a World Series, and they wouldn't have come and traded for us if, if they weren't. So, you know, coming over, I knew my role would change and that I'd be pitching in different spots, but nothing that I haven't done before in my career. So I was accepting of, of any new role I was going to get, anything that would give us a chance to win and get back to the playoffs. How does preparation change from having kind of a set role to just being open to anything? Is, is there a difference in your routine? Is there a difference in your mindset? Is there any difference at all? Um, the only thing that changed was that would be my routine. I just kind of had to change a few things I do pregame. But, I mean, even those were minor, um, just not a whole lot. I just got myself down and I got prepared earlier in the game to be ready to pitch, uh, knowing that I could be pitching it in the early innings as, as well as later innings. You know, it's nice to know, like, going down the bullpen, it's like, hey, Chapman's thrown three in a row. You're going to close today. So, I was mm-hmm. like, okay, perfect. You know, um, you know, be ready in the sixth and seventh. I'm like, okay, perfect. You know, Larry and uh, Joe were always good about giving me a heads up. On, on what my role might be. How do you think you're a different pitcher from when you were with the Yankees the first times to now, I guess? No, experience. That's the biggest thing. I've, I've, I've pitched in a lot of different situations now, I mean, throughout my career. And, you know, leaving New York and pitching for the White Sox was completely different than, than pitching for New York. Uh, I just felt like the, the games were different. The atmosphere was different. 
the uh, the intent, like the per, you know, like I feel like when you come to New York, your your goal is to win a World Series. You know, not that you know the White Sox weren't really trying. I just they didn't seem like they were interested in it. Yeah, you know, it's hard to explain that. I mean, like you know, they just ended up. You know, after the first year I was there, second year was basically rebuilding. Third year, same thing. So that's the way it goes. What kind of energy does it give you to be on a team that's always competing? It, it, it makes baseball more fun to me. I mean, I'm, I'm a competitive guy. I don't like to lose. I want to win. I don't care you know, how I have to do it. I, I, I just want to win a ball game. I want to get a chance to win another World Series ring. And, and coming to New York, you know you're well prepared and ready for every game that you came into. What is it about pitching for this team that makes it so special, so much different from all the other teams? When you're pitching at Yankee Stadium. You got Yankees fans behind you. I mean, they're they're loud and rowdy, and you know, they cause havoc and, and and give you a better chance to win a ball game. In all honesty, they do. They can they can get into another team's head. That leads me to this 2017 postseason. What was that atmosphere like as compared to other atmospheres? You won a World Series with the Yankees before, but what does what does 2017? How does it compare to? different postseason atmospheres you've been in it was fun i had a great time I, it, it felt less intense to me in in, in a weird way like I, i've been there before it just felt like it's like hard to explain i mean it was a game and i was very loose in, in in every game i was playing in uh even though the stakes were extremely high uh but the the crowd intensity seemed louder than ever i mean it just felt like it was like we were more focused in, in every game and it, it was a weird feeling it's like hard to explain i know i'm sounding like weird but Someone's got to win, someone's got to lose. I'm, I'm coming in, I'm doing everything I can. And if we win, great. And if we lose, well, then it's just part of it. I mean, that brings me, obviously, to the wild card game. You come in with the Yankees ahead, improbably, because it, that game did not start off well for you guys, as you know. And you pitch <laughs> three and a third innings, 52 pitches, the longest outing of your career what was it like to come in in that scenario like how were you feeling what were you mentally going through i was having a great time it was, uh, <laughs> it was probably the most fun game i've ever played in my life Re- like, it really was I, I i imagine it had to be kind of an emotional roller coaster the way you start out the way you come back the way you go back down like what was what were the highs and lows like <laughs> i mean it couldn't have got any lower after the first first inning and then Bullpen came out, held the held the lead when we got it, and and we won it. We won. I mean, it was the, the crowd was amazing. We're going nuts, or chanting, or screaming. I mean, it felt like it felt like we were at an NFL game that never stopped action. It felt like it was, both teams scored forty five points. Uh, <laughs> it was intense. Do you hear them when you're on the mound in a situation like that? Because it was deafening for everybody yeah. there. Do, is that something that you can feel? Is it something that that really drives you and makes you want to pitch better absolutely i mean they, those when the crowds get behind you the intensity goes up and your your adrenaline gets to, gets to pumping and, and you do things that you're not normally used to doing it's, and that's what makes baseball on the competitive side of me like enjoy it how were you feeling after that game it was the longest outing so how how did your body react how did your how did your mind react after going through all of that that you went through i i was just happy i was happy that i'd given us a chance you know, I was worn out, but I was—it was a good worn out. I mean, we we finished that game up, and and we came in the clubhouse to celebrate. It was—I was—I was very excited. I was very happy. I was full of energy, that's for sure. <laughs> what do you what do you think playoff experiences like that? How did they 
change you or affect you? And how do you think they inform the younger guys on the roster who, for them, that was their first experience. For you, that was experience number whatever, 50 or so. Uh, I think, you know, you know, for the younger guys, I mean, just, just being out there the first time, getting the jitters out of it, the postseason jitters out of your system and realize it's just the same game, it's just the, the stakes are a little higher. I think that them seeing, you know, a few of the veteran guys kind of, take the lead and roll in those games really helped them and made them feel comfortable and then they just kind of did what they've been doing all season and, and continue to play hard and grind. How do you see yourself as a leader in not just the bullpen, not just amongst the pitchers, but in the whole team? You, you Guardy, CC, you guys are kind of the old guard leading the club. So how do you how do you view your role? Honestly, I'm just going to try to pitch whenever they tell me to and try to be a good example both on and off the field for all the young players. Uh, most of these guys don't have, haven't been in the league very long, so I just try to lead by example more than vocally. I don't really need to tell guys things. If they come and ask me, I'll, I'll give them the best advice I can. But other than that, I'm just going to show up to do my job every day and work hard and, and never give up. How much do the young guys ask for advice? Is that something that they're comfortable doing? Uh, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes we'll get to talking about, about baseball and I'll tell them my thoughts, and they seem to listen because they, you know, they don't, they don't seem to get annoyed with me. <laughs> what do you tell them? Like, what kind of specifics are you giving them? Is there anything, like one sage piece of advice that you give everybody? The only piece of advice that I say I ever give, that I always, you know, believe or ask, and I always try to tell them, you're always one pitch away. It might seem weird, but you're always one pitch away from either getting out of an inning or getting an out or doing something that can that can get your offense back in the dugout. It's just a matter of staying focused to make that one pitch. And then even in the bullpen, you've got some young, strong arms out there, guys like um, Chad Green, who was huge last year for you. Ben Heller has been coming up and down, and he'll probably be more of a, a factor this year. What are those guys like? What kind of vibe do you get from those guys? Well, those are like the two most, the two quietest people in the bullpen. <laughs> That's I mean, true. you got Tommy Canley, who's like the loudest person <laughs> in the world. Just, he's, just, he's just literally a 250-pound ball of energy. So what's that mix like? How does everybody get along? It's great. I mean, like, we all goof off and joke around with each other. And you got Dallin, who's, who's always laughing at something Tommy said. And, and Hart can keep nice and loose. And, I mean, the whole, the whole bullpen's just a great group of guys. One of the best I've been a part of people amongst the league are saying you guys are the best just group of pitchers the the most talented group of pitchers is that um a point of pride for you absolutely i mean like it's always you always want to be the best i mean having an entire bullpen be the best in the league is what we all strive for we want to put the best numbers up and be a formidable opponent every time we take every time you know the game gets turned over to us tell me about the off season how have you been working out how excited are you to get back onto the field i'm excited to get back on the field. i'm excited to get down to down to tampa and get the, get the spring training going again see everybody uh do my same normal workouts i do in the off season just you know push myself to, to get stronger and uh be prepared for the season what specific but, goals yeah. do you have for yourself this year this, this year, the same goals I have every year. Zero <laughs> ERA, changes. zero hits, zero home runs. Like, yeah, I just want to be unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> How attainable is that, do you think? Well, I mean, I think it's attainable. I mean, if I, if I, I think I, I feel like I'm, I'm capable of putting together a better year than I, than I did last year, for sure. I think that there's always room for improvement in my game, and I'm going to continue to do that. Uh, it's just a matter of drive and get myself and my body prepared for it. How, how do you uh, how do you feel about the team 
going from last year the Yankees were underdogs, now everybody's kind of gunning for you. CeCe Sabathia said, yeah, he loves it. He loves that the Yankees are hated again. How do you feel about it? I, I, I love it. I like coming <laughs> into town being the big dog. Well, I think you guys will definitely have a lot of that this year. We're definitely going to be one of the biggest teams, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Just in terms of, like, tall people, yes. you. I think you have, yes, I mean, you like, are running the market on tall people. <laughs> absolutely large teammates. Me and, me and Brett Gardner are going to be the <laughs> of the group. Exactly. It's okay, though. I'm way taller than he is. Yeah, just just keep rubbing that in his face. I think it'll be cool. Oh, for sure. <laughs> He's not growing anymore. John, how was the DR? Did you survive? You're still here. Bueno. Oh, muy bien. Well, muy bien. You picked up a little Spanish on the way. <laughs> uh, very, a very little Spanish on the way. <laughs> you went down to, to spend some time with Sevi, right? I went down to spend some time with Luis Severino and Esteban Floreal. And with the help of my friends at Duolingo, as well as our <laughs> photographer, Jim Petrozello, who speaks a little bit of Spanish, we managed to, I think, communicate almost everything we needed to and not uh accidentally go the wrong way ever or eat the wrong thing ever so success I, yeah I, I would call it a roar, roaring success nothing <laughs> nothing to speak about i guess how was sevi i mean from my interactions with him i you know i love him so how was he for you was he as open and engaged as as i've known him to be well, well, i'll say a couple things about that first off i agree severino is great I love talking to him. I think he's incredibly interesting. Everything that I'm about to say, I mean, as an indictment of me, not him, and I want that to be very clear. You know, he is really determined to do all interviews in English, and that is an absolute credit to him. You know, I was speaking to his agent when I was down there, and he told me that among all the other things that, you know, he loves about Luis, he's the only player that he has who asks for help enrolling in things like English classes in the off seasons and has been for years since he, you know, since they signed together. It is more my fault, you know, 15 or 16 years into this process than it is his fault as a 23 year old for, you know, speaking nearly perfect English. Our conversation, I don't want to get too, too deep into what I'm going to write uh, just because I'm still trying to you know, flesh it out a little bit, but we were talking about some really sensitive things largely focused around his failure in the wildcard game last year and how you re react to that. And obviously the team won, so he got another chance to pitch. You know, he finished third in the Cy Young, and yet if that had been his last game of the season, I think it's a totally different offseason for him than it would have been. Other the season would have been the same, but, you know, I think it would have been a much different few months for him. So we talked a lot about that, you know, and I think that he did an amazing job expressing himself about those things and about those emotions he was having. I can tell you I would never want to do that in a second language. His ability in English is great, but I, I felt there are times that I felt bad that I couldn't just say, you know, I, I did say whenever you're more comfortable, say it in Spanish and I can translate it later, you know, I mean, and, I, and he wouldn't do that. And it, like I said, I'm not at all knocking him. I'm knocking myself on that. My hope is that if he reads it, if he ever saw it, that he conveyed exactly what he wanted to convey. He is just, he's really smart. He is an incredibly talented pitcher. He's young and he's been through a lot, but he, he's just got an incredible perspective on life and the world and where he came from and what he wants to do. He is 23 years old and he is starting a charitable foundation and he's really excited about it he has a you know wife and a young two and a half year old daughter who the dad was with them she was 
she had, at her first day of school and she came home from school all excited but it was important to him that you know they be part of um, our conversation everything like that so beyond everything else of the baseball stuff that we discussed it was just you know this is a extremely well put together 23 year old so i mean that, that was the biggest thing i got from him i think i'm very impressed by him and you know so now it's about trying to explain why <laughs> and what about Florial? Yeah, I don't want to repeat myself too much. Florial is a really interesting story for me personally because, you know. He's what, 20? He turned 20 last yes. year, right? He turned 20 in November. So before we get to the really sensitive parts about, you know, Florial's story, it's interesting for me personally because this past year, I feel like we've just been crossing paths over and over again. So it started, my photographer Jim Petrozello and I, you know, we kind of experienced this all together this year. So we went down to Charleston thinking we were doing a Blake Rutherford story, which turned into a Donnie Sands story because Blake Rutherford was hurt. I didn't know the Charleston roster basically at all. And Florial was a interesting prospect last year, but he wasn't on any like top 100 lists or anything like that. And I remember after the first game that Jim and I saw, when we were talking, we were both like, you see that Florial guy? And I mean, it, it was that kind of like jarring, like, you know, standout performance couldn't even tell you anything specific he did in the game it was just you can tell especially at low a this is a high-flying prospect so that was in june in july jim and i went to miami for the all-star game for the home run derby and florial was there for the futures game and that's the first time i spoke to him and you know so he was representing the world team and there's a whole lot of intrigue in uh his background but you go into that world team clubhouse and it is the tower of babel as you imagine especially you know for someone who really only speaks English, um, it's very intimidating. And so I'm sitting there and I'm trying to like strategize really, you know, how I'm going to talk to these two guys. And someone says, oh yeah, Florial speaks perfect English. And it's like, he does? Like, he's 19 year old. I thought he was from Haiti. Um, 19 year old Haitian kid. You don't expect to speak perfect English, but yeah, go over there in perfect English. And so we, we had a little bit of a chat there, but I wasn't really, he wasn't the reason I was there that day. Arizona Fall League, Jim and I again, this time we spent a lot of time with Florial, where in addition to you know, talking to him a bunch of times. He was also translating for us with his teammates a few times, <laughs> occasionally even translating for us his teammates' comments about him, which <laughs> you have to imagine is not the world's most comfortable thing to do. <laughs> and then, I mean, very graciously agreed to give us some time in, since we were going to be in the Dominican Republic. And I, I, th I think I pretty much went there with the impression that I was going to write a baseball story about a guy who is... Probably, you would think, when Gleyber Torres graduates to the big leagues, going to be, by this time, a year from now, I think he'll pretty obviously be the Yankees' top prospect if he's not himself in the majors by now. You know, he went from Glowway, Charleston, to he played in the playoffs with Trenton AA last year. So, you know, he's moving pretty quick through the system. But anyhow, when I got there, the little bits and pieces that I understood about his background um, all came into focus. And it was extremely sensitive story that he kind of let us in on and i was lucky that his whether you want to call it an, a manager or an agent or a scout it's a complicated relationship of what exactly a boscone is um down in the dominican republic but he gave me a lot of time and the yankees head of international scouts donnie Rowland, gave me a lot of time to basically explain to me you know everything that this kid went through to have to create an official identity for himself in order to be able to sign with the Yankees. And, you know, in, in the process, I think I learned a lot about my own ignorance and or my own prejudices about just, the, you know, you, the way you process information when you get it in America 
and, and and the things you just kind of dismissively you know think but then you know you hear the whole story and i think it was really interesting for me to be able to hear the story from all those perspectives and i really very excited to tell the story about how he overcame just i mean literally not having an identity but i don't think there's any way that you know he could have gotten across all the pieces of kind of what he went through and and the frustrations and the difficulty and you know the sadness that he felt going through it if it had been just you know those five minutes in the clubhouse at the futures game when there's a million people around how much does it mean to you to tell that story it's nerve-wracking i mean i'm not this isn't talking about you know why someone is able to pick up a slider but not a change up you know i mean i need to get this right Right. (laughs) i felt very similarly with the donnie sands story i wrote last year that you know i was really writing about the hardest thing that a person had gone through in his life and i was asking him to trust me to tell the story and i think in this case i got a lot of people to trust me to tell the story but you know everyone was really very helpful to me in explaining to me all the details of the story and i think that you know look i mean there's he's not going to be the last kid to be in this situation and i want to get his story right for his sake and also i hope that you know there can be a way that the next person in this position doesn't necessarily, you know, have to go through what he did. Getting to spend the amount of time that we get with these players on stories like this. I, I've had plenty of great interviews at the stadium. You know, guys have given me time sitting in the dugout or whatever for feature-length stories. But you know they always got one eye on the clock. You know, they're on a schedule. They got somewhere to be at a certain time. So it's really like imperative that you know going into the interview what questions you are most important to you that you want to get out there. Do you have a few minutes? Yes, I have three minutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With stories like this, you know, uh, really one of the, the greatest benefits is just not having that clock and being able to not have even formal questions, just kind of small talk in between things and getting to uh, observe guys when they're not in uniform and they're not in Yankee Stadium. Getting back to Seve for for a moment, did you observe anything or or pick up anything about him that you think you wouldn't have in the locker room at at Yankee Stadium? It's interesting because I I was laughing as you were discussing, you know, your workout with Sonny and I've done a lot of these workouts, off-season workouts with players. You know, Luis Severino is working out on a track alongside the entire team, Dominican Republic national track team. And he's got, you know, I think he was working with like seven other people. And I don't ever really see Luis as kind of like the, the lead dog in a sense when he's up here. I think everything kind of like follows CC in some ways. And, you know, Dellen has a very, you know, big presence. You know, Luis is very calm and he's kind of just hangs by his locker a lot. You know, I mean, he's, he's always, you know, talking to his teammates, but, you know, you don't hear his voice so much. It was interesting for me to see, you know, as these workouts are going on. He's very much the guy, mm-hmm. that, you know, running the show. I have a, an important question, though, for you. On any of these trips, you come back and you think about what you ate and this being your first trip to the DR. What was the best meal you had while you were down there? Dude. <laughs> yeah, uh, the best meal we had there. I could tell you um, about an incredible restaurant that we went to where I had a red snapper dish that I'll probably be able to close my eyes and remember for the rest of my life. But the most memorable meal I had on this trip is certainly after Sevy's workout, we went to his apartment in uh, Santo Domingo. We got everything done, you know, 
interviews about 45 minutes and yes hands out thank you so much you know no 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 uh my wife and mother have been cooking you lunch this entire time (laughs) and we're just like oh no 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 oh don't be silly he's like no my wife and mother have been cooking you lunch this entire time sit down (laughs) Um, and they just proceed to bring out this just incredible dominican feast Mm. and every chicken rice vegetables shrimp i mean just every single thing they just kept bringing out these massive portions of it It was me it was jim our photographer it was our driver um for whom the joke for the rest of the trip everywhere we went was that he wanted to make sure we were going to stop at casa severino so that he could get more food (laughs) i i recognize that it's part of hospitality down there and 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 afterward i was asking jim because we had obviously seen his wife and mother were cooking but I said, I'm like, did you think they were cooking for us? And Jim's like, yeah, I knew they were cooking for us. And I, and I guess I, maybe I should have realized that like that was just going to be part of it, the experience, and I didn't. But it was just so – it was such an honor to like, be able to sit there and have lunch with him in his house you know, and, and, and to see the pride he took in like, the food that they were putting out and making sure that we got to share that moment without recorders running or without anything like that. Just, you know, he wanted to like be the host yeah. and – it, it, it was very special. I, I know, Nate, you had a similar experience in Tullahoma. Yeah, well, you know, Southern hospitality is still alive and well in, in Tennessee. and uh, Southern and very Southern. <laughs> so the day that we spent with Justice Sheffield, you know, we met him at uh, his high school in Tullahoma. And, uh, you know, he went through a workout there and we met, you know, his brothers. We met his dad. Justice said to us, you know, after this, we're going to go back to my grandma's house. She's going to cook lunch for you guys, and, and she can throw down. We're like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Grandma Holloway, she can throw down. <laughs> it was amazing. It was, like you said, a memorable meal, one that I was very thankful for and one that I will always remember. I mean, ham and chicken with dressing, which is a, a dish I had not been familiar with. It's delicious. And then like mashed potatoes and cream corn and cranberry sauce and sweet tea. And Grandpa Holloway made a uh, banana pudding for dessert. Like it was like, <laughs> thank goodness uh, we don't have too much more to do because we were all ready for a nap after that. Yeah, they, they threw down in, t- in Tullahoma. So I, I was glad to be there for that. I'm jealous. So um, what did you eat, Hillary? I, I was here <laughs> in New York and I made myself some Chicken sausage and kale and peppers. Superfoods. Yeah, yummy. Terrific. It was delicious. And this content is content you're only going to find in Yankees Magazine. So if you haven't subscribed, I don't know why you should. Go to yankees.com slash publications and sign up. I'm sure we have some kind of a deal going on. Yeah, there's only maybe a week left. At the January 31st, our holiday offer expires. So... Go on there now, check it out. You can get a full year of Yankees Magazine. That's eight issues for just twenty nine ninety nine, and you'll get a voucher along with your first issue for two tickets to a Yankees game. So pretty good deal. Subscribe now. Yeah. Follow us on at Yanks Magazine on Twitter because we throw up a lot of content when we're on the road and when we're here at the stadium. Stuff we're, we're working stuck on. Stuck at our desks, desperately desk. trying to write these stories we're from these just trips. Just writing away. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we got so much content, and we want to share it all with you. We got a lot more fun stuff coming up in the podcast, including a lot more 
player interviews that we're going to be putting out for you guys to enjoy so you can hear just from these guys themselves about what they're working on what they're excited about what they're doing what they're seeing what what their goals are for the 2018 season which is speeding right up so mm-hmm. and i gotta tell you like so it, it's january 20 something right now and in working on this severino story i've been going back watching again that wild card game this morning and this afternoon i've been watching game four of the uh, alds I, I don't want to say i've forgotten because i haven't forgotten but those playoff games you know as the last parts of the season that we got to see here it is really something to go and experience those again and I know that whether it's a spring training game coming up or an April game or whatever, we're really just not that far away from baseball again. We're getting to that point where, you know, it's starting to Super Bowl is going to be over in a week and a half, and then it becomes just, you know, the run of the baseball season. Yeah. Can't wait. I've already moved on to baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not going to talk about the Super Bowl. We don't care. Baseball coming up. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for uh, sharing your stories, guys. Can't wait to read them. Bye.